0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash impact.
1: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem-solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. What we're
2: good at as humans is creating and establishing traditions. And we're slower at coming up with new ideas. But a fertile source of new ideas is someone who has a different set of traditions, a different perspectives, different approaches, different sets of skills. Not only are they good at generating novelty and, and innovations and stuff, but they make the people already living there better at those things too because of this recombinative process.
1: That's Joe Henrich. He's fascinated by how culture has shaped our evolution, not only changing our bodies and expanding our brains, but even expanding our ability to cooperate. Thank you for being here. This is really great. Ah, oh, it's great to be with you. You're famous for noting that a number of us, including you and me, are in a sense weird. That's right. Weird is short for what? It stands for Western,
2: Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic.
1: Which is not everybody in the world, right? <laughs>
2: of the world, 12% of the world, roughly. So, yeah, we coined the acronym as a way of raising consciousness about the fact that psychologists tend to study this small slice of humanity. And there's a lot to be learned by studying the full diversity that Homo sapiens
1: has to offer. And in the process of doing that, you've really come up with some interesting ideas. For instance, the idea that culture can shape evolution, that it not only can, but it does.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think that this has been going on for a long time. So, um, I mean, you could, the estimates vary, but at least a million years. So going back to something like fire and cooking, um, which is clearly culturally transmitted, if we dropped people into the forest, they don't innately know how to make fire and cook. It's actually <laughs> right. quite, quite hard to make a fire, but it looks like our intestines and colons and stomachs have been shaped by being a species that cooks.
1: Would it have been Homo erectus a million or so years ago that figured out fire?
2: Yeah, so there's a, there's a little bit of a debate about that, but my colleague Richard Wrangham has argued that it may have been the emergence of fire or some sort of food processing that led to the emergence of Homo erectus, which is where our brains really begin to expand, we get taller. There's a big energy release when you start cooking.
1: The part of that that really struck me as fascinating is that fire is allowing us to do some of our digestion outside the body and therefore evolution follows suit and makes use of that by giving us these smaller body parts
2: yes the second most energy intensive tissue in the body is the digestive tissue so natural selection wants to save energy wherever it can so if you have all this extra colon you don't need it just shrinks the colon down so we have these unusually small stomachs short colons we have much smaller teeth we don't have these big jaw muscles that go up to the tops of our heads like our fellow apes and our ancestors dead. And that's because we've we've shoveled off all these things to, you know, knives and chopping and cutting and cooking and heating and fermenting and all these different ways we preprocess food before uh, putting it in our mouths.
1: Another of your ideas that interests me is that innovation thrives through the connections and collaborations within a cultural group.
2: Yeah. So we tend to think we have what some historians have called the myth of the heroic inventor. So we see invention as something that's seated in individual minds and individual geniuses. But when you look at how actual inventions occur, it's really a recombination of ideas that come from different people that, you know, they might, they might meet in the head of one person, but that's because they got different ideas from different people. So, once you realize that, you realize that the size of the population is going to create more opportunities for ideas to be created and then circulate and recombine to create more ideas. Mm. And in order for those ideas to meet, the population has to be interconnected.
1: The idea of interconnectedness and the importance of it reminds me of a lunch I was having with the anthropologist Randy White a few years ago in Provence, where we were eating was a place where Neanderthals had routinely crossed the terrain. And I asked him why he thought, what was the major reason why modern humans survived in that same area and the Neanderthals didn't. And he said it was innovation. And I said to him, what role did communication play in that? He said it was essential because they were all over the place. And an idea, a new idea, could go from one cave to another with ease and get improved on by the people in that cave and improved on by people in other caves. So the interconnectedness of that kind was very important. And so I figured from that that with the Neanderthals, they were so spread apart, what happened in Cave 12 stayed in Cave 12.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Because the the Neanderthals were adapting to Ice Age Europe. So the best way for them to survive was to spread out. They had limited resources to deal with. So this shrinks the collective brain. And the the interesting thing here is the Neanderthals had... Uh, equal or larger brains than we have now so you know in, in general in primates brain size predicts cognitive complexity so they were at least as smart as ours us, we, we are in some raw sense but we had the collective brain uh working and you know of course there's then interbreeding with neanderthals and stuff so we're, we're all kind of a mix but
1: which i guess is why i'm so proud to be six percent neanderthal because mm-hmm. <laughs> so i can say <laughs> i might have a bigger brain
2: <laughs> right exactly
1: So the idea of the collective brain, I guess a vivid example of that is what you call the lost explorer challenge. Turns out there are so many stories of explorers who are very smart, and yet when they get lost and they get into territory they don't know, they don't have the advantage of the people who know that territory with their collective brain. How common is that?
2: I've collected lots of cases, you know, dozens of cases. And I think what the main thing they illustrate is how dependent we are as a species on this large body of knowledge that we get culturally. So one of my favorite cases is the the Birkin Wills expedition, where uh, explorers left Melbourne to travel to the Gulf of Carpentaria in northern Australia, and then they wanted to travel back. They end up getting stranded. and they, But when they get stranded, they brought camels from India uh, to help them in the trail, and the camels escaped. Well, Burke and Wills struggle to survive because they can't find food or make tools or do the things that any aboriginal adolescent could do. Mm. Um But the camels actually get away and survive, and now Central Australia has lots of camels. So the smaller brain camel does well because they have lots of instincts. They can smell water a mile away and process food and stuff. But the humans didn't have that because we're reliant on this large body of knowledge generated by the collective brain that allows us to adapt, find food, survive, make medicines, travel all those kinds of things. So it just shows this, that what our brains are for is really taking advantage of this culture stuff, this knowledge and wisdom and know-how bequeathed to us by prior generations and not about individually solving the problems on our own.
1: Is that a new way to use the word culture? Yeah, well, so there's a growing field which you know
2: goes all the way back to the, say, mid-1970s, but that's just the very beginning of it when people first started to think about culture as anything we acquire by learning from others. Uh, So you get cultural traditions because things are passed down from one person to another person, down through the generations. But if you think about all the things that are influenced by our ability to learn from others, then you can get this cultural evolutionary process. And, And our species seems to be unique in the degree to which we have a cumulative process where each generation we add to the body of knowledge created by the prior generation, you know, improving it and honing it or just adapting it and changing it. Um and that's one of the things that I've argued makes us uh, unique in the animal kingdom is this reliance on this cumulative body of knowledge and our and our ability to imitate others.
1: I was really interested to see how your research points to the importance of diversity for innovation to take place, measuring how more US patents were issued wherever there was more diversity. Can you tell me more about that?
2: Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of fascinating research coming mostly out of economics on this. In our lab, what we did is we we said, well, we think that a good way to capture slices of culture is to look at surnames. So we got data from the U.S. Census, and we calculated the diverse, diversity of different surnames in every county in the U.S. for basically the entire history of the U.S. And what we can show is that counties that had greater diversity, as measured by number of different families, as captured by surnames, leads to faster innovation, so more patents per capita, and more breakthrough patents per capita. One of the interesting uh, things that happens uh, in this research is that you can look at the immigration quotas that were put in in um, 1924, there was a big push to restore the ethnic diversity of the U.S. back to the 1890 census, so a uh, decision was made by Congress and signed by President Coolidge to sort of shut down immigration from Italy and, and Eastern Europe. And this uh, so this ended essentially ended immigration from a lot of these places. And then you see a sudden decline in the patenting in the U.S. in those in the domains where those immigrants had previously been patenting. In you know, people bring expertise depending on where they're coming from. Uh, And one of the my favorite part of the story is that the native born Americans actually get less innovative, too. And this is something that recurs through this. Uh, literature is that when people come in from diverse places with different ideas, not only are they good at generating novelty and, and innovations and stuff, but they make the people already living there better at those things too. But What we're good at as humans is, is creating and establishing t- traditions and we're slower at coming up with new ideas. But a fertile source of new ideas is someone who has a different set of traditions, a different perspectives, different approaches, different sets of skills. And they come in and that creates an infusion of new ideas that you just get the ideas much faster than you would if the individuals within one particular tradition are just sort of plodding along. So it's like a fertilization of things that have been occurring elsewhere.
1: It's funny. It sounds like something as valuable as that would have been picked up as part of a survival mechanism that the trial and error of evolution would put us through, and we would reach out to other groups. On the contrary, there's this preference for our own group that seems to be very powerful
2: yeah well um i mean i've I've written about that, and the secret of our success, I make the case that a lot of our sort of ethnic biases that you see you know across diverse societies tendency to prefer people who speak your language or speak your dialect, dress similar to you, those kinds of things. Um, are because when you're going to actually interact with people, you have to coordinate on social norms. And so this causes people to use cues like linguistic similarity, for example, to decide, you know, who to interact with. And you can see this in very young children and even in babies with in some experiments. So you know, that leads to this bias, and you can see that in the scientific realm. So if you study co-authorships among scientists, they tend to co-author with co-ethnics, people who share their mm. ethnicity. But the most impactful papers are, occur when you get people from very different backgrounds together, if you look at, like, measure scientific impact by number of future citations or something like that. So in some sense, people do exactly the wrong thing, right? They should be looking for more diversity, but they just tend not to. And it's probably all going on at an unconscious level,
1: right? So why, I wonder, why does it persist when it's not so effective?
2: Well, the the idea is there's a big value to this coordination thing. So there's always this kind of this paradox of diversity is there's these benefits to having the same norms, knowing what to expect the other person to do and, you know, creating all this conformity because every increases cooperation, essentially, and then the power of diversity. So the trick is to create institutions where there's at least norms about how to interact with each other so you can get the benefits of the ideas. Um... Uh, without creating the miscoordination problems that ha- that happen when people from very different places try to interact.
1: You remind me of a study I read about in Scientific American a few decades ago. They programmed a computer to have squares of red and blue on the screen, and they were randomly mixed. But then they gave each square a preference to have at least one of its sides next to a square of its own color, just a 25% preference to be next to its own color. They ran the program many times, and they started to see blues clumping together with blues and red with red until after a few hundred trials, it was evenly divided, all blue on one side and all red on the other.
2: yeah, so these these small differences then aggregate over time. And uh, I mean, that, that I think that explains lots of human phenomena. But some societies have figured out ways to around this. So even if you look at hunting and gathering societies, they'll have rules about forcing, people to marry further away. Really? Yeah, in Australia, it's it's called linguistic exogamy. It's very non-intuitive to us. But you have to marry someone who doesn't speak your language. Now, really, everyone's multilingual, so there's no problem with communication. But you have kind of the language of your local community that's the language you grew up speaking. And then there's other languages, which you learn growing up, but they're not your home language, not the language everybody speaks in day-to-day life. And you have to marry someone who speaks one of these other languages. And that forces people to go further afield than they might otherwise, and creates links via marriage ties among these bands, and effectively creates a larger collective brain. These same groups will have rituals where they'll all get together once a year, say, or once every couple years. And they're doing some rituals and things, but as part of that, they're exchanging all kinds of knowledge and skills. And so it expectively expands their collective
1: brain. When you brought up rituals just now, you reminded me of the benefits that humanity seems to have had from religious rituals. That's been a strong driving force in our survival because we get more cooperation.
2: Yeah. Social scientists have long sort of recognized by observation and studying different societies that rituals have this powerful effect. But recently, psychologists have gotten into the act and done a lot of controlled experiments to look at the effects of moving in synchrony or jointly making music um, a number of other pieces of ritual. And it turns out these things really bind us together and increase our cooperation. So you can think of this like as a social technology. So groups that have regular communal rituals, are, you know, creating stronger bonds among the social group and expanding their groups, generating more cooperation than they could otherwise. And they're gonna be prosperous and spread at the expense of other groups. So, you know, rituals are really a core part of our species history. And they, you know, we don't really know how far they go back, but you know, they're widespread across societies. The smallest scale human societies have them. There's reason to think Paleolithic societies had them
1: cooperation is another funny thing. It's better the more we cooperate, but we tend to cooperate with our own group better than we cooperate with alien groups, foreign groups, groups that don't seem like us. In fact, some, some people say that we cooperate best when we're at war with another group. But I think you've expanded that idea so that cooperation when in war is just one of the ways we cooperate well.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, humans cooperate in lots of different ways, but I think the point you're, one of the things you're pointing to is that what's amazing about human societies is the variation in the scale of cooperation. So, you know, you can cooperate just with members of your nuclear family, you can cooperate with your extended family, you can cooperate with your village, which is several different clans, say, or large extended families, You can cooperate with some larger unit, your ethno linguistic group, and you know, then you can go up from there to, you know, the big nation states of the modern world. And so one of the questions I've been interested in is what are all the different ways that humans have figured out how to scale up cooperation? How do you get us to cooperate on larger and larger scales? And you were mentioning about the war. We've actually done a bunch of studies on that where we look at people who have been heavily affected by war shocks and then we look at their cooperation and you know they seem to have more intense feelings of cooperation within this circle within their kind of interdependent sphere right so and it does seem like it lasts decades we you know we have data showing that it lasts at least a decade but Mm. i think it lasts longer uh so yeah all these things are at play in human evolution and then you know i'm trying to figure out well how is it we scaled up We mentioned ritual, but I've also done research on religion, showing the effects of believing in big, powerful, moralizing gods and asking, well, does that make people cooperate more? Uh, And so we did experiments all around the world to show that people who believed in these powerful, moralizing gods were more likely to cooperate with a co-religion.
1: How would you experiment with that?
2: So there's two different ways. One is you can get variation across different societies, and you have people do an experiment where they can give to themselves or a member of their local community or to a distant co-religionist, someone who's in their religion but lives in a different village. And you see how they allocate money between these two. And then you look to see if you can explain any of that variation in people's willingness to give by asking them questions about their religious beliefs, in particular, whether their god is moralizing, how much their god is willing to punish, their god or gods, Um, and uh, whether their god is omniscient, so how much they're going to know about whatever whatever they do. And we show we can explain these things. Now, that's a kind of correlation, so there's lots of ways you might worry about that. One of the ways that psychologists, and this is really work led by Azim Sharif and ar and Zion, they unconsciously remind people of God, and then they see if they cooperate more or less in these different circumstances. Um, and, th- yeah, so, and so that seems to suggest that people uh, get a bit more pro-social towards co-religionists when they're unconsciously
1: reminded of God. So this is based partly on the distinction between the gods that were once thought of as playful And kind of human in their frailty compared to a powerful God that punishes you for what you're not supposed to do. And the things you're not supposed to do are tied to rituals that further bring you together.
2: Exactly. Rituals is definitely one of them because that's, remember we were mentioning earlier that, you know, rituals can help bring people together. So in order to get people to do rituals, there's often a God that wants you to do the ritual. But then it's also related to things where cooperation and sociality might go awry. So things like stealing and murder and adultery and the kinds of things that we typically associate with uh, moralizing God's. Um, And the other fact that people don't realize is that if you study the diversity of of religions across human societies and back in history, you know, lots of gods of societies are weaker and more whimsical and you know they're less powerful they can be bribed cajoled people develop reciprocity relationships with their gods and that it's it's you know it's been a historical trajectory to get these gods that are eventually omniscient control the afterlife things like that and so we make the case that this is one of the technologies that's been evolving as societies competed to help trying to scale up the the level of cooperation
1: When we come back from our break, Joe Henrik tackles a topic that's fascinated me for a long time. How do fads and fashion spread through a culture? Everything from political ideas to haircuts. This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Joe Henrich. Our talking about the importance of rituals, especially religious rituals, led me to a worrying thought. If religion is so important in all the ways we've been speaking of, what happens to us now as our society gets more and more secular? Do we have rituals that can replace the religious rituals, or are we in trouble?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question and something my colleagues and I have thought a lot about. Um, One possibility, uh, this is kind of the the, the pessimistic side would be, yes, it's a big problem and, and, you know, societies might start to fracture. The optimistic side would be that religion provided a bridge to building the strong secular institutions that now characterize societies like Denmark, where... Uh, people are operating, you know, under a new rubric, and this the, the rubric and the societies are have these powerful institutions which can maintain cooperation and and get people, yeah. In some ways, replace the functions of religion. So, in some sense, it was the it was the ladder up to these other institutions, and and now we don't need it anymore. Um, I've I, I go back and forth on the ritual part of your question because I think there are lots of tools like the synchrony that are useful and that, you know, secular institutions could use, secular organizations could use it. But there are these bits of evidence which make you worry. And one piece of evidence is a study of 19th century communes. And so you can look at religious and non-religious communes, and they often both have rituals. But then if you look at how long they last, the secular communes, based on things like Marxism and other political ideologies, almost all collapse within of sometimes a few years, sometimes a few decades. The only ones, like the Mormons and the Hutterites, that really have legs and last for over a century, are some combination of rituals and and supernatural beliefs and re-
1: religious beliefs. So, The idea of ritual contributing to cooperation struck a note with me because I, when I was working on a book, I came across a research project at a university in California where groups of people were encouraged to walk across campus in step with one another. And their replies to a questionnaire afterwards showed that they were more willing to trust the people in the group they walked in step with than the ones who walked randomly. And that's kind of an example of a simple ritualistic behavior, isn't it?
2: Yeah, so that's and that's the kind of test, and they've even done that same experiment where they then had the people engage in a in a what's called a public goods game, where you're given money and you can give it to the group at a, at a cost to yourself, so you increase the total group take home, mm. and people are more willing to give to the group, and the group ends up making more money after you've walked around in sync around campus, and the, one interesting thing that it's worth pointing to is that militaries took relatively long to figure this out, mm. so Europeans. You know, a guy named um, William of Orange, uh, a a Dutch general, was reading some Roman uh, writings and realized that the Romans sometimes marched their soldiers around in synchrony. And so he started doing it with his soldiers. And this eventually leads to military drills where everybody was marching their soldiers around in sync because they're tricking their psychology into being more like a band of brothers. Right.
1: That's great. That's so interesting. Now, cooperation, you say, evolved necessarily with language. Why necessarily?
2: Well, the, well, one key idea is that language itself is a product of cultural evolution, right? We learn from each other. Languages can get more complex as we accrete more words and more grammatical tools. So there's that. But the hidden problem in language is that um, it's, a, it's got a cooperative dilemma embedded in it in the sense that language allows you to lie cheaply. And if everybody was just lying for their own self-interest all the time, then the simplest thing to do is to stop listening, right? Because you're just going to get tricked and deceived. So you could just sort of turn off. And so unless you can kind of have some norms or something to make sure that people are at least approximating the truth much of the time, then it's hard to get the evolution of language as a cooperative communication system off the ground initially. So, you know, so the evolution of language, you can't get language before you've solved some basic elements of cooperation.
1: I see. Well, I have one question that you seem to be the person to ask that's been on my mind for decades now. My question is, what brings about changes in culture? There are these sweeping experiences we have of a fad or a fashion or a political idea or a haircut or a religion that sweeps through a culture does any of your work give us insight into how that happens?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a growing body of, uh, I think, ways of thinking about this, or, or pos- you might think of it as possible hypotheses for any given rapid diffusion of ideas. One is is a kind of an intuitively obvious one, in that um, it's clear that humans are geared from a young age to attend to prestigious individuals. So... Now that might sound almost tautological because it's prestige is almost defined by that. But p- individuals who are perceived as particularly knowledgeable, successful, skillful, get preferential attention. And the way we think, so we've done these experiments with little kids where uh, you expose a kid to some models, some some individuals, some people, adults uh, no adults playing with um, s- some toys. And in one case, you have observers who are watching one model but not watching the other. And then you expose the kids to the same adults who are using the toys, um, using a different toy, choosing one beverage, choosing one type of food. And then the kids have a chance and they can play with a toy. They can choose a beverage and, uh, and choose a food. And they tend to copy the individual that was watched by other individuals. So it's as if they're with any, you, you can ask them questions and they don't have any conscious access to what's affecting them, but they're hugely more likely to copy the individual who is looked at. So somehow they were tracking who other people were paying attention to, and they use that to figure out wh- how to direct their attention.
1: So the person who's being watched is momentarily famous in that tribe. Exactly.
2: Tri-un. Exactly, exactly. And this, of course, explains all kinds of things like celebrity endorsements, you know, because yeah. celebrities get watched and then everybody sees them getting watched and then it makes them a good a model for all kinds of things outside their domain of expertise. Um, and and yeah, so so this can lead to things diffusing if the right people bright in this case, meaning people likely to be imitated by others, adopt some idea or some way of doing things that can then diffuse as a consequence of just the prestige of the
1: adopters. So that example of the experiment where all you need to affect the child's choice, all you need is somebody paying attention to somebody doing it. Right. So it doesn't have to be a celebrity in the conventional sense. Right, right. Or a person with uh, some kind of standing in the community. So that could explain, I suppose, how a fashion or a a belief gets legs in a little community where there's nobody apparently influential.
2: Right. And then chance things can, you can lead to bandwagon effects. So if if one person does something and gets lucky and becomes successful, then everybody pays attention to what that person does. And, you know, things can can run away from there because then more people pay attention and you can create these runaway processes. It's particularly important in the modern world because in this kind of small scale societies of human evolution, you know, if you were copying a good hunter of you know, in those most cases the rubber has to meet the road after many decades or months of working, you're you're going to see whether the person is a good hunter or not. But in a, you know, in a world of millions of people or billions of people, um, the payoffs are less clear, the people are very distant, your access to information is less, so you can have all kinds of strange uh, bandwagon effects. One of my one of the examples I use in class and I, I used it in a, in a recent book is uh, the UK government was trying to get women to go in for breast cancer screenings to see if they had this particular gene which increases your likelihood of getting breast cancer. So they began an educational campaign in January of 2013 or 2014 and they had, had very limited success. They were trying to get knowledge out there and they, they, they weren't getting anywhere. And then the act, actor directress Angelina Jolie wrote an op-ed about her personal experience of having a double mastectomy in the New York Times. And then all these helplines all around the English-speaking world lit up with people requesting to the, have, have themselves checked for the gene. And researchers actually checked to see if those people had learned anything about the sort of medical science behind this, and they, you know, they they didn't know any more than the people who hadn't heard about this event. So it's just an example of the of the power of prestige to to that, spread something.
1: That reminds me of the Katie Couric effect when she had a colonoscopy on national television.
2: Yeah, that's a good example. I should run that down.
1: And there's another example in the Philippines, I think, where a famous person followed some advice and it shot up the compliance with the rest of the public. Right. But it is interesting that in those cases, you have reliably identifiable leaders of one kind or another.
2: Right. But what's interesting uh, in in some of these cases anyway is that uh, they're not people who have expertise in these fields, right? right. So Angelina, right. I'm sure, is a brilliant person, but she's not a physician. She hasn't done any research on on breast cancer screening or anything like that, right? But... Yet she seems to be the model. So, you know, so you need some kind of explanation for that. And and so we've been working on this prestige one. I I want to circle back to your original question, because one other thing that seems to be important for the spread of ideas is what the current distribution of other ideas is. So you can imagine different ideas fit together to varying degrees. So an idea that might have its time, not because the idea itself changed, but because the the distribution of other ideas in the field, which among minds, that it fits together with uh, has shifted. So certain religious beliefs could get going when they really um, can connect with people's minds. And I I make this argument in uh, The Weirdest People in the World, in my 2020 book, that Protestantism begins to spread uh, when it does. Martin Luther is clearly an important figure, but there were lots of other figures before him that had similar ideas. But he came at a time when, you know, cities had really emerged. There was an individualistic psychology and that the sort of psychological ferment had shifted, I argue. And then that made this very individualistic faith of Protestantism quite likely to spread. And so it was a matter of other things happening that gave Protestantism its
1: time. Yeah, the idea that ideas spread like magic is one thing. And yet there are people who have careers based on the idea that they know how to make an idea spread. And I kind of doubt it. <laughs>
2: right. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very complicated for exactly this reason. It all depends on the details.
1: Well, you've spread my mind out a little bit in our conversation. We're coming to an end of our time. But we end every show with seven quick questions in a vague way to do with communication. Of all the things that I'd understand, what do you wish you really understood?
2: I guess I really uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about the breadth of psychological diversity and that almost all of our data comes from people from societies that are Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. And I've spent a lot of time trying to gather data from other societies, but I always feel like I'm sort of just scratching the surface, right? Like there's an iceberg there and I've just kind of Mm -hmm. prospected one corner of it. So I don't know how big the iceberg or how deep it goes. So I guess I wish I knew more about the cultural diversity of psychology. You know, what? because this is important because it's like, what are human possibilities? What are all the different things we can do? We, we tend to infer from our own lives what humans are capable of. But I want to use, you know, the full diversity of hum- humanity to understand what we're capable of.
1: Great. And question number two, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I try I try
2: to use the Socratic method. I, I just try to ask them simple questions and lead them down a path that, that hopefully will cause them to rethink whatever they're thinking.
1: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs>
2: Maybe this one. Um, <laughs> let's see. Gosh, so many possibilities. Uh, I think that the toughest ones to answer are usually questions that where a person will take something I say and relate it to uh their own personal life and you know someone might ask me a question about their son or daughter that somehow they've gotten from a grand lecture i've given on human evolution and they kind of want advice on how to help their son
1: right right how do you stop a compulsive talker
2: (laughs) ah that's a tough one um uh just i think try to try to ask him uh difficult questions
1: oh that's that's good i haven't heard that one before it's a good idea. Okay, let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you've never met. How do you begin a really genuine conversation?
2: Hmm. Well, um, I mean, I'm I'm kind of an oddball. I'll be uh, I'll often ask people, uh, you know, what they're passionate about or you know what they're working on. Uh, so that's a typical way. And I try to, I try to find out what they. You know, what gets them excited and go from there?
1: Yeah, that word passion is something I've used too. What are you passionate about? What are you passionate about,
2: yeah.
1: Makes some people open their eyes wide with wonder that I would ask such (laughs) a thing. Next to last, what gives you confidence?
2: Um, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I don't tend to think about confidence a lot. I just kind of press on and get on
1: with it. (laughs) As if you had it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think that, yeah, just don't think about it too hard would be my my solution. Press on.
1: Sounds like a good idea. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Mm.
2: So uh, my favorite book of all time is Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. And I read it in the latter part of graduate school, and I just think it's a fantastic piece of big science, big thinking, well thought out. And I immediately applied to teach a graduate seminar on it while I was a graduate student. and uh, Professor Diamond attended my final uh, the final class of that course, right and That was it. so that was a great thing.
1: Did he approve?
2: I think so. Yeah. I mean, I was teaching his book. Uh, yeah he was he was a good. He was a good guest.
1: That's great. Well, you've been a great guest. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with me and exploring these really interesting ideas. Well, thanks for your questions. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Joe Henrich is professor and chair of human evolutionary biology at Harvard University. His books include The Secret of Our Success and The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chemay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Carl Safina. He's written a delightful book about how he and his wife Patricia took on much more than they expected when they rescued a tiny, disheveled baby owl.
2: She was so close to dying, she looked like a wet washcloth. I said, leave her with me. Uh, it, it'll soon be time for her to be flying and we'll manage the release from my from my backyard here. But uh, th- things happened that were unexpected that caused a delay in that process.
1: Those unexpected things led to an intimate relationship not only with Alfie the owl, but also with her mates and offspring. They led as well to Carl's insights into Western culture's flawed relationship with the rest of nature. Carl Safina, Alfie, plus one and the who. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit AlanAlda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
0: My son had a gift with technology Making your cat happy is a number one priority. Priority number two is keeping a clean litter box. Fresh Step Outstretch Litter helps you do both. Fresh Step Outstretch Litter traps waste at the surface with less crumbles and absorbs more waste and odor compared to Fresh Step Multicat. Find Fresh Step Outstretch Litter at a store near you today. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Certain trademarks used under license from the Procter & Gamble Company or its affiliates.